Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, I've got a question for you. What's that? Do you know what it's like to be married to addiction? Um, Yeah. 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 And I think there's a lot of other descriptive words that would describe what I was married to for many years. (laughs) Addiction is probably the polite way to say that. Addiction is absolutely the polite way to say it. Well, we have a special treat today. Julie Sanford is joining us and Julie has her own podcast. She's agreed to be a guest here with us on the Intoxicated podcast, but Julie's podcast is named Married to Addiction. So I have a feeling she knows what it's like as well. Julie, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here to talk with y'all today. That's great. That's great. You know, I think the best place to stop, start to stop. We didn't sleep particularly well last night. This could be choppy. Good luck to all of us. Um, Best place to start would be uh, just giving our listeners a little bit of an introduction to your story. Would you mind kind of going back to the beginning and talking about how alcohol has impacted your life and how, you know, we'll, we'll work our way toward how you got to talking on a podcast about that. Yeah, for sure. So um, growing up, I did not really have very much exposure at all to alcohol, very minimal. Um, my parents weren't drinkers. I did have an uncle that uh, struggled with addiction. So I do remember when I was little, you know, he would call our house sometimes and Uh, there would be kind of discussion around that. So I knew it was happening, but obviously, you know, my parents didn't share a whole lot about that with us. And he was in another state. So it wasn't like he was actually in the picture physically. Um, But fast forward to when I got married, that changed. So my husband and I have been married for 13 years. Um, From the beginning, you know, he always drank, we drank socially, and he, he drank more than I did. I had some concerns, but it wasn't really anything to where our life was being negatively affected, really. Um, It wasn't like super huge red flags back then. But about six, seven years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, he lost his dad. And at that point, that's where everything really just started spiraling. He definitely, his alcohol uh, intake increased significantly it did start affecting our lives um, in a massive way. He ended up toward the end there, not really being able to work. So at that point, uh, we had a real problem on our hands. Julie, do you guys have kids? We do. So I have two daughters uh, that are grown from a previous marriage, and then we have a 10-year-old son together. That's great. That's great. Um, can you talk, you know, I, I don't want to, dwell on digging up the, the pain of, of the family aspect, the kids aspect, but has the, the situation had an impact on the kids? It's one of the questions we ask people when we first meet them. So I know our listeners will be really curious to, to hear your response to something like that. Yes, for sure. So one of my daughters, um, when things were really bad, she was already out of the house and had her own family, uh, but she you know knew what was going on. Um, my younger daughter still lived at home. And then obviously my son was here too. And yes, I mean, the short answer is everybody was massively affected. It was incredibly difficult. My son was really little at the time. 
he was between like about three and five when it was really bad. And so he had very limited understanding of what was happening. Um, we talk about it a little bit now. My husband's been sober for five years now. He just actually celebrated his fifth year sobriety anniversary yesterday. Oh. But uh, yeah, so that that's exciting. But he he remembers a little bit like he knows that daddy can't drink because, um, you know, the way we explained to him back then was, you know, it doesn't affect him like it affects other people. And so he, he knows that, but I don't think he remembers a lot of the specifics of it, but obviously my, my older daughter for, or my, my younger daughter, who is still in the home for sure does. What was the getting sober period like for you? First of all, did you urge for it to happen before your husband was ready? And like, did, did he need some prodding along to get to the point where he was ready to, to seek some help and get, get sober? How, can you talk us through that kind of period? Yeah, most definitely. So he had had some times on and off before it got bad where, you know, he had stopped drinking for a number of months, uh, never really lasted. But yeah, when things were, were really spiraling and things were really bad, I, I asked, I pleaded, I demanded, I, you know, everything for him to get treatment because I just really felt like that was the only thing that was going to fix everything that was going on. Um, you know, now I look back and realize that had he gone solely for me, it probably wouldn't have been under the best circumstances, but he did finally get to the point where he was ready to go for himself. And obviously that's, that's when it really makes a huge difference. You know, you mentioned that he had periods where he would, you know, short stints of sobriety. I don't want to say short, I don't know how long they were, but he had, he would stop for a while and start again. It's, it's been our understanding. And certainly it was the case for me that you can't unknow what you know. So like from the period, it took me 10 years to get sober, but from the period of the first time I tried to stop until I made it over the hump, uh, you know, all those periods where I was drinking and trying to control it, you know, really in the back of my head, I was just, I was compartmentalizing and I was ignoring the truth. So I got to imagine that takes a toll on the relationship when both of you kind of know, and there's periods of sobriety and periods of drinking. And you, you talked about it as a downward spiral. I mean, that's, that's got to take a huge toll on you as the spouse when both of, you know, well, you might not know what the inevitable outcome, but you know, what needs to happen. Uh, that's gotta be just a ton of stress on you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and before, before things got really bad, I mean, obviously at that point, I knew for sure there was a massive problem, but before that I can start few times, you know, getting on online and Googling, like how much is like normal quote unquote drinking, you know, how, how much, how much do most husbands drink? And I would kind of look around to my friends, my circle of friends. And I'm like, well, you know, her husband seems like she drinks about, or he drinks about the same as mine. And so I remember kind of like dipping my toe in the water of trying to determine if there was a problem but even before it got to be very, very evident. So yeah, it was always kind of just an current of concern, I guess, um, even before it got to that point. I, I remember that, like looking at other spouses at parties and I was like, well, Matt would be kind of keeping the same pace, but then I would realize, oh, well, he pre-partied before, you know, he probably, and I don't know what they do in their home before we all gathered, you know, social gatherings, but it is hard to evaluate because I and had post party too. I was and, a good post party. Yes. Yes. You wanted to close it down and, you know, continue at home. But you know, then I was under the 
you know, Matt was trying to convince me, oh, this is how all the guys drink. All the guys drink like this. And I was just like, I don't think so. I think you're a little heavier than the rest. So, well, it, it leads really well into one of Julie's topics that I know she's covered on her podcast. You don't know what you don't know. Was, was that this, the kind of the mindset that you were in at this time? I mean, you're trying to figure it out, but now that you've done this work, you've gone through recovery, you're talking about it to other people, you know, a lot, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about what you meant when you covered that topic on your podcast? You don't know what you don't know. I think the biggest thing for us as wives, cause, um, that's, you know, that's my audience specifically is the wife. I think that the biggest thing is when we, when we are presented with finally knowing that something needs to change and there's a problem, we think that, okay, well, I'll just, you know, do what I need to do to, to help fix it. I'll just, and, and I'm like a fixer anyway. So I thought, okay, well, you know, there, there's things that can help and there's ways that people get sober. And so I'll just do what I can do to, to make sure that that happens without realizing that I was spiraling into codependency. And it feels very like your, your gut reaction is to, to do something, you know, to try to jump in there and say, okay, well then I'll just make sure that, um, you know, when, when he has alcohol in the house, I'll just pour it out and then he can't drink it. Or I'll just make sure, you know, that I put an ultimatum that he can't do this. He can't do that. You know, all of those things seemed at the, at the time, like, what I needed to be doing because I was trying to control and fix the situation. And like I said, I, I was just spiraling myself by taking that tact. That was the opposite of what I needed to be doing at the time. So what I didn't know uh, back then was that I was becoming addicted to the addiction, I call it. And I didn't realize at that time that that was a problem. Is that the same thing in your mind as codependency? Codependency is you know, kind of a dirty word that's got a bad reputation. A lot of people don't like that word. But when you talk about being addicted to the addiction, is, is that more or less what you're talking about? Yes, that's for me. That's how it felt. Um, it ruled my life. It was all that I thought about. It was, uh, you know, I woke up thinking about it. I went to bed thinking about it. It affected my performance at my job. It affected my relationship with my kids. Um, I ended up covered in hives for months at a time because it was a, a stress reaction to everything that I was going through. So yeah, for me, it was, I was addicted to the addiction and, and to trying to fix it. Oh, the physical manifestations of constant high chronic stress are just amazing. And I think we're learning more and more about that. I think it's, I heard, I heard someone on the radio just yesterday talking about it, a, a, a doctor, a professional, and he was saying that it's, you know, it's the uncharted territory. It's the, we look for things in the medical profession in the traditional ways. And when we can't, you know, if your arms hurting and we've looked at all your joints and we looked at your muscles and you looked at your bones and there's nothing wrong, then we just throw up our hands and say, we can't figure it out. And often that's when it's a stress related thing. So I think there's a ton of that. And that's certainly something that our suffer or um, listeners suffer from greatly. I'm glad you mentioned that. So your husband seeks recovery. He starts down that path. At what point did you realize that you needed something as well? You needed some form of recovery as well. So one of the big turning points for me, and I kind of knew obviously that I, my life was unmanageable and that, um, 
you know, I, I was in a bad position myself, but I didn't really know exactly how to fix it. And I had heard about Al-Anon. I had one particular friend who had traveled this path, you know, years before me. And she kept telling me that I needed to go to Al-Anon. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'm not like those people. I don't have the problems that they have. You know, I, I've got this. And so I, I kind of was thinking about that and knowing that that was something that I needed to do, but not taking it seriously until I went to, when my husband was in treatment, they had a family week. And so the treatment center was about three hours away from our home. So I went and stayed in a local hotel there and we went for each week, basically like getting up and going to work. You know, we would go get up in the morning and go and we'd be there all day and we'd eat there and we'd go through a lot of the classes they were, they were teaching um, the people who were there and they did a lot with us around how we needed help too. And that was really where I started kind of having this eye-opening experience of, oh my gosh, yeah, this is not, um, even, even him being here in recovery, there are, or in treatment rather, there were still things that I knew were going to follow me home. And so at that point, I really, truly realized that I needed to start being serious about taking care of myself through this as well. What did you do for recovery? After you, you do the family week, you learn just enough to know you need something, right? What was your, what was your go-to? Did you do some Al-Anon at that point? I did. Um, I read a lot about, um, you know, their teachings. I got really familiar with, you know, what the, the different verbiage was, you know, we hear the codependency detaching all those things. I didn't really understand any of that. And when I, when I kind of started to realize what it was, I went from not identifying with it, thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is a thousand percent me. I just, I really just tried to educate myself. I also educated myself a lot about what was happening on his side. Um, he was, he went to a dual diagnosis center. So he was also uh, diagnosed with bipolar while he was there. And so that made a huge difference for him because then he was treated and, you know, medicated for that as well. So I really started looking into, um, you know, co-occurring disorders and how those things affect each other and just really did a lot of, uh, just reading and learning on my own. That's great. That dual diagnosis is a very, very common one, addiction and bipolar. So, you know, I, I know that we've got listeners who have dealt with that and we've probably got listeners who um, haven't gotten to the, to the dual diagnosis yet, but it's, it's in their future. That's a very, that's a very common thing. You talked about the verbiage. I've heard you talk about on your podcast Things like, you know, accept what we can't change and learning how to detach with love and creating healthy boundaries. These are all things that Sherry and I talk about and work with people on as well. But I, one of the things that was really kind of captivating for me that I heard you talk about was how hard that is to follow those mantras when you're in the middle of it. We talk a lot about, you know, when you're in it, you're, you are, the active addiction is still taking place. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Give, maybe give our listeners a little bit of comfort in how hard it is to do these things that we're told to do. And we read about when your life is chaotic and stressful in that way. It really is. And I think that that starts with really not understanding what those things mean, because like I said, I was in that position. I remember the first time that I heard the concept of detaching and I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because he is he needs me right now. Like, he, how could I possibly detach from him right now? Like, he needs me more than ever. That doesn't make sense. And, and, you know, now, obviously, I realize that's ridiculous. But, 
But back then it just, it seemed so counterproductive and same thing with, you know, boundaries and all of that. It just, I didn't understand how it would help him. And that was my sole focus at that time. Now I know that it, it helps me. And then it also has the potential to help him. But when you're in it, it just all seems so backwards. And so I just, you know, I try to, to tell the people that, that women that I work with too, you know, it's going to feel, I call it bristly. It's going to feel bristly at first. It's going to feel weird, but you know, you'll, you'll see as you move forward into these things, the value of them. The detachment piece specifically for us was really effective, although we had no idea. Sherry had no idea she was doing it. We didn't call it detachment. We, we didn't know the verbiage at the time, but, but we just got to the point where you had had enough of me, right? Well, there was a podcast that Julie had, um, that I listened to that on Julie's it's married to addicted Mar- addiction, married to addiction. Yeah. And, uh, one of our, um, people in our echoes group, had mentioned that. And so I had listened to this one in particular, and it was talking about detaching, but also like doing that, let go, let God sort of theory. And I didn't realize until I listened to your podcast talking about it. And this is just, you know, not too long ago, how I was doing that, how, um, I wasn't intentionally not trying to worry about you, but I was also putting my faith somewhere higher Mm. and that I had to detach and that worrying about it was only making me worse. And again, I didn't know anything. I didn't know I was doing the, doing the right way. I hadn't learned. I hadn't read. I was worried about Google searching anything that he would find out what was going on, but I had just gotten to that point. And ironically, um, one of the scriptures that you had mentioned in a podcast in Romans, I went to my Bible and I was like, Oh my gosh, I have that from a lady's Bible study. I had that marked and it was about transformation, but I just remember like kind of refocusing my attention elsewhere and not with him. So in a way I was like detaching, but I had no idea I was doing it. Yeah. We're probably the least qualified people to talk about any of this stuff because we (laughs) We did it all wrong. and And I guess I felt like it just came natural after so many years of hearing the same story, the same sorries, the same excuses. I was just, I'm done. I'm living my life, you know, with you under our roof, but we're going to be a little bit separate. Well, and, and that's why the reason I brought that up is because that's why it was so impactful. Sherry didn't detach because she read it in a book and then she had to kind of figure out how to do it and, you know, kind of fake her way through it. She got to the point where she was, done with me. And that made the detachment really effective. I say there's two reasons that I quit drinking. One was the really debilitating depression and anxiety that I was undergoing. And the other one was that my wife was, you know, one foot out the door, even though she wasn't physically leaving. And I could tell, and that scared me to death. Do, do you have, what, what was it like for you? Um, I mean, you talked about how you had to learn what these things actually meant, but I I always try to cut people a ton of grace when you can know what detaching with love means, but if you're not ready, you're just not ready. And there's nothing wrong with it. You have to almost get to a certain point, don't you? Before you can enact these things, whether you understand them or not. Absolutely. And I think Sherry, something that you just said was, is I, I, I say the same thing all the time. The only thing that changes when we are in that space of just constant 
you know, fixation on the addiction is how we're going through it. It didn't change what my husband was doing ever. You know, none, none of the tactics that I tried or things that I attempted to do to get him to stop were effective. And then that just makes my frustration level rise. And so I think it, it is kind of something where you have to come to the end of yourself almost when you do throw up your hands and you're like, I can't, <laughs> I literally can't. And so, you know, whether you, whether you hear the concept first and then, and then try to, and get to the place where you are actually doing it, or you just get to the place like you did where you're just doing it because you're in survival mode, essentially. I think that it, it has the same effect when you finally realize that it's not changing anything but your experience. And that's, that's a huge thing that I try to tell the ladies that I work with, because I, when I started realizing that it was very eye-opening and it was the beginning of me really being able to embrace uh, doing those things. Yeah, that's great. We, Sherry mentioned um, that she looked up a scripture that you had mentioned. I know that your faith is a very important part of not only your life, but your podcast and the work that you do with people. Sherry and I are both Christians. We've taken a slightly different tact. We, we want uh, our stuff, our podcast and, and the Echoes of Recovery group and our Shot Sobriety group, we want it to... to um, be a safe place for anybody of any faith background. Um, so I, I'm not suggesting that either way is wrong or better or worse or anything like that. But I'm, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your, your beliefs, your faith, and why that's so important in front and center for you. Because I, I, I think it's a compelling story. Yeah, for sure. And, and there's value in both. There's value in both uh, approaches. And I, the reason why I decided to really make this a faith-based uh, platform is because I remember there was one time when I remember sitting in my closet, just like desperate to find something that would help me. And I was scrolling through my phone and I was looking at, you know, a few different options and trying to find maybe like an online program or something. And I was looking for something that was specifically geared towards me as a wife, which I mean, Al-Anon is great and has a lot of merit, but that's kind of for, you know, everybody, family members and things like that. And so I wanted something that was specifically for a wife, because I feel like our, our journey through this is different because a husband wife relationship is very different. You know, there's a physical component to it that you don't have in other relationships and just some other layers that just make it a different experience for us. So that was one of the things that I was looking for. And the other thing was because I did grow up, you know, as a Christian, I really wanted guidance from God through this because even though he and I definitely had our struggles during this, you know, my faith was really tested and I had a lot of anger towards him for a while because I didn't understand why we were being, you know, quote unquote, allowed to go through this when, you know, I, I did have my faith, but I still knew like in my core and in my soul that that was, that was guidance that I wanted. And I wanted to, to be led by him because he knew what the best outcome was for everybody involved. He knew whether or not my husband was going to get sober. He knows, you know, whether or not my husband's going to stay sober. I don't know that it's been five years, but I don't know that for sure. He knew um, whether we were supposed to stay together or not, or maybe we weren't. And so I really needed that guidance and wanted that. And I couldn't find that thing that was geared towards a wife from that perspective. And so that's why I created that because I felt like I was looking for back then. Do you feel like because you were guided and your, your faith was tested, but you came through that, 
do you feel like, I don't want to use too strong a word like profit. Um, but do you feel like you're, (laughs) sorry, do you feel like you're, you're, you're doing God's work now to, to fill that hole? Cause listen, listen, there's no question other than Al-Anon, there's nothing on this side on the addiction side. A lot has happened in the last decade. It's been, it's great. There's more than just AA. There's, uh, you know, I could name a dozen people right now that have programs to help people. And so if one isn't a good fit, go find a different one. You don't, don't just start drinking again. There's lots of opportunities to find sobriety, but because there's not that much for the loved ones and you're focusing specifically on the wives, do you, do you feel like it, it's like a pay it forward kind of thing? I do. And I, in full disclosure, I was not a willing participant for a really long time. I did feel like this was something fair. Like I said, my husband's been sober for five years now. Um, I just really started this a year ago. So I, I was in a place for a really long time where I felt like, yes, you know, when you've been brought through something, I do believe that it, when you've been brought through something and learned what you learned, that is your responsibility to some degree to now help others who are back where you were, but I didn't want to, um, you know, it's not the funnest subject in the world. And back then I was trying to do something completely different. That was kind of fun and light. And even though I felt like, okay, well now you have this message to share. I, I just like dug my heels in for a long time and thought, but I don't want to do that. And then, um, it was kind of ironic the way that it worked out. So I entered a, a, coaching program, a business coaching program for the other thing that I was doing. I had one tiny little, it was a blog post or something on my website about this. Um, because I just kept feeling like God was telling me you need to share. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll share. I'll write a blog post or something. So I did wrote it. And that was it. Like I didn't address it again. Well, as part of the business coaching program, they went to the website that I had again for something completely different, but they found that one little thing. And they came back to me and they said, um, you know, you, you are, you are paying us to help you. And so we're going to tell you honestly that we think this married to addiction is 1000% what you need to be doing. You're going to have impact over here. Um, you are going to help way more people over here. And I remember going to my husband after that and, and being mad <laughs> because I said, I'm not paying them to tell me to change direction. I'm paying them to tell me how to make this over here work. But at the end of the day, he said, well, if that's what they say that you should do, then that's what you should do. And he's always been really great about, you know, being cool with me, sharing our story and whatever, because you know, he wants to kind of help, help people and pay it forward too. But after I got past, like, after I you know got over myself, basically, I realized, all right, well, all the little nudging is over. And now God's like literally knocking me over the head with other people in my face saying, you're doing the wrong thing. So that's kind of how I got here. And, and obviously, you know, I, I have no regrets. I love what I do and it doesn't feel big and anymore. Like I just, I feel like I totally am where I'm supposed to be, but it did take a lot of convincing. I love that. <laughs> I I feel like that is me. <laughs> like you take a lot of nudging. I, I take a lot of nudging from you <laughs> for sure, but I was like mad and I didn't want to do it. And I don't know, like those early podcasts, you know, a lot of emotions come out and I don't, I don't prep for it, but I always get like regretful and sick to my stomach almost on Friday mornings before we record these podcasts. And it's just, I'm like mad that I still have that anger a little bit that it had to happen to our family. Yeah. But, but I see like, but I see Matt, like just leaning into it and really 
working it and making it a success. So, but I, I love that she described when you wrote that first post, I have the same conversations with God. Fine, fine, fine. I'll do it. I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. Fine. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one that talks that way. Yeah. Well, I'm, you guys are better than Jonah. So just think of that. <laughs> I, um, I think it's really interesting that you said that your husband was supportive and you said he's kind of always been supportive. Was there a transition period? There, there certainly was for me. I mean, when I was still you know, a high functioning alcoholic, I was hiding it from everybody. And therefore everyone in the family was required to hide it from everybody too. So it's, it's this awful family secret. That's just toxic from within when he went to recovery. Was he immediately open about that with people or was there a transition period for him? Well, it was all pretty much secrecy before then, because, um, it, you know, it's, it's the, it's the shame and the guilt stigma, right. That is so prevalent. But he had some, he had a couple of episodes uh, before he went to treatment where he tried to take his life. Um, there was one that he was missing for almost 48 hours. And that was completely uncharacteristic. Like he's, he wasn't ever really a bar guy. He was just to come home and, you know, drink his face off guy, but he never really, he never really did that. So when he went missing, I knew that there was something wrong and that that's what was wrong. So clearly when something of that magnitude happens, the family is notified and, um, and so they, they kind of came into understanding the, the gravity of what was happening because of that. But after recovery, I think when, especially when he was diagnosed uh, and started being treated for bipolar, he had always told me that there was something else wrong. I just remember him saying that over and over again, you know, I drink because there's something else wrong. And I think that he felt such a sense of relief and, you know, had such a, an understanding now and just, you know, kind of like an eyes wide open experience where he was like, okay. I get it, but I think that he really just wanted other people to know, like, this is a thing. Like, if this is happening to you, I want you to be aware that it could, it could be this. And obviously when he came out of recovery, he felt so much better and more positive about everything. Um, and so, yeah, we, and we had talked about it before we very first, before we like, like social media and stuff like that, you know, we talked about it and he's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I have zero problem with telling people because you, you might help somebody in the process. That's so cool. It's so gratitude based, you know? Yeah. Like I mean, I think, you know, his point that there's something wrong, something doesn't feel right in me. And so I drink because that helps that whether it's ADD or, you know, depression or sort of those things or childhood trauma. I mean, there's always, it's never just the alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. it, It doesn't have to be a specific medical diagnosis like bipolar often it is, but, but there's something that's causing the need to self medicate. Yeah. And that recognition, I because that. Yeah. I didn't, it took me a long time to look that deep. I just thought it was the alcohol and I just got to stop lifting the liquid to my lips. And it took a long time to realize there were things that were causing that need in me. So that, that's really impressive. And I think that's very important to, you know, be sure and share that story because even if it's not your loved one who decides to get sober, I think that it, it allows you as a spouse to have some compassion and understanding that it's not just because they're a bad person. It's because there's something that doesn't feel right in them. And, you know, it just allows, I think, a little bit more grace and understanding and caring, which as a spouse, as you were mentioning, it's hard to think of detaching when they need me right now. So that's a one way that you can still feel like you're detaching, but you still are connected to them. Like, you know, that there could be something else there. Yeah. Yeah. 
The, so the business coaching folks are pushing you in this direction, which is great. And you said it was roughly a year ago. How did you decide on the Married to Addiction podcast? I know you've got a strong social media presence as well. How did you decide exactly how you wanted to deliver the message? I just, I knew really starting out that I just wanted those two things that I felt like I was missing. I wanted to talk to the wives and I wanted it to be faith-based and it's just kind of unfolded for there, from there. It's just kind of been, you know, as, as I've talked to different people and heard different needs, I just kind of try to follow what, what I'm hearing that they need and think about the things that I needed back then. Like, you know, I, I, if I needed somebody to explain to me how to detach, which I didn't understand and how you could do that, like you just mentioned and, and still have some sort of mercy. Like that's why, that's what I didn't get. I thought detaching just meant like a wall. And I thought that doesn't make any sense. And so I, I try to think about what was confusing for me. What did I really need help with? What things did I go through that felt um, the hardest? Like those types of things. Like I just recently did an episode on, you know, what is entitled, what about my kids? Because I know a lot of people have concerns with that. So, um, you know, I shared some resources and things on that episode of things that you can do to support your kids through this. So I just really try to, to lean into what the women I work with tell me they need. And then what I remember needing when I was going through this myself. But how did you choose the podcast as the mode for delivery, as opposed to I'm going to write a book and see how that goes or like, how did, how did that discernment come to be? So that was basically, I just, I love podcasting. I feel like it's really easy. I don't really like blog posts, writing blog posts. I don't really like doing Facebook lives. Um, it just honestly felt the least cumbersome. <laughs> and when I started looking into it, I thought that it was going to be really difficult and a lot of tech. And I thought it was going to be expensive. And I thought, you know, this is probably isn't for me for all of those reasons. And then when I realized that literally I could just, uh, you know, open the website, turn on my mic and start talking, it got a lot less scary. And so I just, I feel like it's a, it's a quicker way to deliver your message. And um, I just kind of fell into it like that. And I think podcasts are so reachable because you can listen to them on the go. And yeah, so I think that was a good choice. Yeah. And you've got a really, I don't know if it'll come through. Oh, we're obviously recording this by Zoom, but with the tech that you have at home there with your, whatever microphone you use, you've got a really silky radio voice, which I think when we were emailing back and forth, I told you and you were surprised to hear that. But, um, but yeah, you're a natural, that's for sure. And you just, I saw on Instagram, you just crossed, 20,000 downloads. So congratulations on that. Things are taking off. That's really great to see. Yeah. Thank you. I'm just, I'm so grateful. It's just, it really just blows my mind when I do think about the fact that I'm literally sitting in my bedroom with a microphone and people are listening to me talking. Like, I think it's almost 50 countries now, which is just crazy to me. So I think, you know, like, like you said, Cherry, it's very accessible. Um, you can reach all the corners of the world. Like I find it, I find it an easy thing to do. And so I just, I feel like it's really powerful to get you, powerful way to get your message out there. Well, and it's a fantastic name, married to addiction. It's very clear what your message is going to be about. So yeah, not a lot of ambiguity there. Nope. Well done. She didn't pick it. It's not unintoxicated. Okay, it's intoxicated. Okay, sorry. I don't even know podcast. the name of our own podcast half the time. Well, we, when we started, it wasn't a couple's thing. It was me and my buddy, Jason, and uh, we had no idea what we were going to talk about. And we didn't expect anyone to listen. So 
but now we've got way too big an audience to change the name. So we're going to go with it. It's a good I mean, there are definitely worse names out there. That's for sure. Um, let's talk about some of the subjects, just going through your catalog of episodes, some of the, the episode titles and then the description really kind of stood out to me as things that I know our listeners would love to, to hear your take on. One, what does self-care look like? You use the same verbiage that Sherry and I have used when we talk to people. You put right in there, self-care is not just bubble baths. It's more than bubble baths. Can you talk a little bit about that? It really is for, for us who are walking this path because, I mean, I just needed to have a vegetable. You know, like I was so just depleted in every way, shape or form. And of course, when you're going through emotional trauma, you don't want vegetables. You want Taco Bell and ice cream. And so literally, I feel like for us, it self-care boils down to basic needs, concentrating on basic needs. And it doesn't mean starting a new diet because it's not the time for that, but just being more mindful of caring for yourself, you know, caring for your mental health, um, like I said, eating some decent food, that's going to give you some nutrients that'll help your brain fire better and help, you know, sustain you emotionally a little bit better, um, getting enough sleep. And it's so hard to sleep when you're going through this, but, you know, really trying to just be intentional about that. Okay. Well, what can I do to potentially get a little better night's sleep, even having a cup of, you know, sleepy time tea before you go to bed or just little things like that. Um, it's a horrible time to really try to do some huge life changes, but just really trying to work on a few small things that will just take better care of you physically, I think are hugely important. So yeah, the, the, you know, the massages and the pedicures will be there on the other side of this, but right now it's just like really just taking care of your basic needs and making sure that you're doing as, as good a job as you can about that right now. Yeah, that's great. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I wish you hadn't said what you le led off with, though, because it's nine o'clock in the morning here in Denver as we're recording this. And now I want Taco Bell and ice cream <laughs> at nine o'clock in the morning. Well, but, but I love I love that you made the distinction. I think this is really, really important. You made the distinction between starting a new diet and putting yourself under the stress of here's my new eating plan. I'm going to do this at this time of day, and I'm going to do this at this time of day. And here's how I'm going to cook for my family. And I got to get my whole family on board because they're not used to eating this way. So much stress and pressure. You're just saying, eat a vegetable. Look, try to take care of yourself in between the stress and the trauma that you're going through. Don't make it a life change. Just, just try to incorporate things that are good for you in there when you can. I, I think, you know, nature falls into that category. Get outside, take a walk, go be with the trees and the birds and whatnot. Doesn't mean every day you have to set your alarm for 5 a.m. and take a walk in the woods. Just get yourself some exposure to the things that are good for you when you're in the middle of a hugely traumatic experience. Yeah. Recently in one of our um, calls, we talked about self-care and, and sometimes self-care is saying this is enough for today. You know, like I, you know, maybe you order a salad out for lunch, but, or you just sit out for five minutes quiet, you know, on your lunch breaks, but it's also finding that don't put yourself under the, um, strain and stress of a whole new lifestyle. It's just do something small, you know, to make your day. Cause that, I think just alleviating that self-pressure and stress, that is a self-care technique because so many of us are wives and moms that want to make everything perfect for everybody else and we neglect ourselves. So just 
taking that stress off, you know, I think is a huge component. There's a, there's an important tie in there that I'd love to hear what you have to say about Julie. One of the things that happened in our relationship, and I know it's very common when I was drinking was both of us made an effort to make it look like there's nothing to see here. Everything's fine. So whether that's Sherry, you know, all of all, you know, the inside of the house was all in order and in place for the most part. Handmade Halloween costumes, even though it would be two at night, I'm crying because, you know, he'd overdrank. It was the weekend. And, And, you know, I was doing my part too. I'm, if I had a heavy drinking night at a neighborhood party on a Friday night, I'm up at eight o'clock in the morning to mow the lawn so that in case those neighbors who saw me sloppy drunk the night before happen to be out, they'd see, oh, there, oh he's clearly not a, got a problem. Look at him mowing the lawn and waving at me. Mm-hmm. So that keeping up of appearances is just exhausting. Did, did you find relief once you were in recovery in that you can just be yourself? There's nothing to hide anymore. And is that something that the people that you deal with have to deal with as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, I just had somebody post in my group about how she was worried about her family's perception of something that she was doing. And I just, I feel like there is a lot of relief that comes with that. It's just like, you know, okay, well, this is, this is what we're dealing with, you know? And I think that a lot of the the shame and guilt is what keeps people from ever getting to that point because they're not reaching out. And I did that same thing. You know, I tried to pretend like everything was okay. And then when I clearly couldn't hide it from, from everybody, I still hid it from the people that I could. I remember telling my, my friends really early on, Hey, just so you know, like this is what we're dealing with, but I don't want any advice. Like I've got it. And just, you know, kind of even, even though they knew it was going on, still trying to pretend like, you know, I'm managing it. It's okay. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of that for sure. I know if one of our friends ever came to me and was shared, you know, oh, I'm dealing with this. I would be like, can I bring you a casserole? Do you want me to bring you some chocolate chip cookies? Like, what can I do in the moment? Because we do try to say, I've got it covered. I'm dealing with it because a lot of the times we've been dealing with it for years, Mm -hmm. but it's getting so much more unmanageable and progressing on their side and we're progressing, but we're just like, we can still handle it. We got it covered. We're a married couple. We're united. We're going to deal with this together, but that's not the case at all. So I love that you're trying to get the word out there and spread that there isn't shame in it. We need to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And on that topic of we're a married couple and there's no shame in it. I, I think the the four of us, if we include your husband in this, I know he's not there. He's not part of this conversation, but uh, I'm going to pretend like he is. So I've got a little moral support on my side of the fence. Um, we're, we're the four of us are open about this now. Certainly that wasn't the case when I was actively drinking and my whole first year of sobriety was very, very hush hush. I didn't want anyone to know before we finally kind of turned a corner and decided we wanted everyone to know what was going on. One of the topics you've covered on your podcast hits on this. What if your husband doesn't want you to get help? And I I think that's really important. We, We talk a lot about how, whose story is it? Who owns the story? You know, Sherry should have every right to deal with her own mental health, to deal with her own situation in the way that's most appropriate for her. But she can't do that without dragging me into it because I'm the one that's doing the drinking. What advice do you give people when they have a husband that's very reluctant to have the spouse not only talk about the story, but, but go out and seek help and seek recovery for themselves? 
I think that the most important thing to remember is the reason why that person most likely does not want you to do that is because it's a threat to their addiction. And so having that understanding, I think helps a lot because yeah, if you think that somebody's going to go and get help, you probably realize that that is going to affect you at some point, but that shouldn't be enough to stop you from getting help for yourself because, and you don't have to go and, you know, display everything on Facebook type of thing, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to a meeting or, you know, get, get some help from, you know, someone like you guys or someone like me or something that you can do. Like, like my, my program memberships are all online. So, you know, it's kind of like in the privacy of their home type of thing, there's still ways to get help, which is essential without it, you know, feeling like it's being shared with the entire world. But my, my biggest advice is don't let that dissuade you because you will absolutely just continue to spiral and we need recovery just as badly. Yeah, that that's an important message, not only for the loved ones, for the wives, for the other family members to understand, but that's an equally important message for the drinkers, for the alcoholics ourselves. I mean, I meet tons of people that are in recovery and addiction, active addiction is a very selfish thing, but early recovery, early sobriety is a very selfish thing as well. I'm reading a ton. I'm going to meetings. I'm trying really hard to stay out of situations that are triggering it. Me, 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 me. And the idea that the person that I'm married to um, also needs help is a really difficult concept to even fathom at that point. And, but, but so, so, so important, not only important in our case for Sherry to know that she needed help, but for me to respect that and understand it. And just because this is such a, a shame laden and um, hush, hush, uh, stigmatized condition, far too few people understand the need for recovery on the other side as well. That's one of the topics that you've talked about on your podcast, Julie, and you do an excellent job on the kind of the marketing side of things. I want to give you a big tip of the hat here. One of the episodes that I didn't get a chance to listen to, but I did read the description, talked about the three signs that you need recovery to, but then you very wisely didn't put what those three signs are in the description because you uh, want to encourage people to listen. So I, I was hoping you would share with our audience what those three signs are as well. Three signs you need recovery to. You know, I would actually honestly have to go back and look at what specifically I talked about. <laughs> Are, you know, to me now, I, looking back, I'm like, there's a lot of signs. So I don't know which three I, I plucked for that, that episode in particular. But I think basically, if you, if you are feeling like you are, like we talked about addicted to the addiction, if you are fixated on that, if that is driving your life, um, that is a huge sign that you definitely need to get help for yourself, because that is not normal. Um, if you are in a constant state of just feeling um, fear and overwhelm and just, you know, panic, waiting for the other shoe to drop when there's not something terrible happening, um, being in super reactive mode when there is something terrible happening, just always living in that state of chaos, that is definitely a sign that you need help for sure. And then just if your life in general feels out of control, you know, like I talked about earlier, how my life was being affected in other areas, like my job, if I had a dollar for every time I left my job, to go check on my husband because he wasn't answering the phone. I would be rich because I did it all the time. So obviously that affected my job. I ended up, um, yeah, I didn't end up getting fired, but I had some repercussions from that. So if it's affecting other things in your life, then definitely you need help. And I think that we just don't 
you know, maybe we do, maybe it does come from a selfish place. A lot of the time for me, I just didn't realize it. I just didn't realize that I was, you know, becoming sick that I, and I didn't even know that the hives was that I'm thinking, well, I really just need to change my laundry detergent, or maybe I'm allergic to cotton now. Like I did not put two and two together that it was the massive stress in my life. It wasn't until I went to your uh, treatment and they just magically quote unquote disappeared that I thought, huh, I wonder if that was stress. <laughs> so yeah, if you, if you just really are feeling just depleted in every way, shape or form, you got to get help. Well, and that stress takes on so many different forms, mm -hmm. physical manifestations like the hives that you described, but just that we talk a lot with people about that, you know, your nervous system is just always on high alert and we're not designed to live that way. We're designed to go into fight or flight on the rare occasion that it's necessary. But when you're living through the chaos of active addiction, especially as the, the spouse, you're there all the time. You're constantly ready for whatever's going to come because you don't know what it's going to be. What was it like coming out of that for you during the period of recovery? Do, are you, do you have any kind of recollections of that? Because you know it, it's our understanding and certainly our experience that you don't, as the spouse, as the loved one, you don't immediately just calm down because they go to recovery. You don't know if recovery is going to work. You don't know if they're going to drink when they get back from recovery. There has to be a period of adjustment to get your nervous system back on track. Was that something that you experienced? Oh, for sure. I was on pins and needles for quite some time. Um, I remember, so I did have PTSD symptoms. I remember in particular, and I'm so thankful that this happened before the pandemic because it would have been just so much more difficult for me. But I had a instant mental, almost panic reaction every time I smelled hand sanitizer because it smelled like alcohol. And so I remember very clearly, and like I said, it wasn't as prevalent back then, thank God, because that would have been really hard because it literally would send me, I mean, my heart would start racing and I would start having like those, those uh, fight or flight feelings just from that one little thing. So it, and it took a while for that to go away. I mean, it was probably a year or so before I, I would realize, oh my gosh, I just smelled that. And it didn't, you know, make me freak out. So yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's obviously an adjustment period when, when he comes home too, because he's like trying to process things in a completely different way. And our, our inclination is to just kind of be like, oh my gosh, yay, everything's fixed your back. And it's not like that. Like there's a huge adjustment period for, for him. And I've seen this with some of the women in my membership too. Like they, they kind of don't know how to, how to walk that line at first because he needs space and he's trying to be really intentional about his recovery and staying connected with, you know, sponsors or meetings or whatever the case. But we have been in that place for so long where we don't feel like we have been getting what we need from him that we're so like ready for things to be back to normal that I think that sometimes we can be a little too overzealous. And so I think it's important to remember that, that that space between when somebody gets out of treatment or starts recovery um, and when you both just kind of feel like, okay, you know, this is our new normal, there's going to be some adjustment period in, the, in between there for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Julie, I feel like we could just go on and on talking all day. There's so many great topics that we have in common and we want to get your perspective on, but let, let's just hit one more, one more excellent topic that you chose uh, on your podcast, one of your episode titles that I want to hear more about. Um, 
and then we'll we'll wrap up with with getting some contact information for you, making sure our listeners know how they can get in touch with you. But before we do that, talk about getting your needs met. You you've got an episode where you emphasize to your listeners that as the wife of an alcoholic, you deserve that, and that you don't you know it doesn't necessarily mean because your spouse is in active addiction that everything that you need out of your life needs to be on hold. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. The, the thing that I really just like to make sure that women are aware of is at the end of the day, if you are looking towards a person, any person to be the one completely and totally responsible for always meeting your emotional needs, you are going to be disappointed. Even if it's a person who's not addicted, but especially if it's a person who is addicted, so you've really got to understand that if, if you're looking solely to that person and, oh, well, he doesn't do this or he doesn't do that, or he doesn't make me feel this way anymore, you're going to be disappointed. You're just setting yourself up for disappointment. So I think that it's super important that you get yourself plugged into a circle of people who are also walking through this because that will help you feel heard. That will, you know, help that will give you some emotional support for sure. But then also, obviously, because my platform is faith based, you know, like, like I said, a lot of times women and myself included who have gone through this have a really shaky relationship with God, have some anger issues and some, you know, feelings of being abandoned. And so I really just try to also get get people to the point where that's starting to be repaired where they feel like they can count on God again, where they understand that he, he is there. He did not abandon you and where they can really just start um, releasing some of that burden to him. Because I think that that's just such a, a valuable thing as people of faith that we get to do. And I, I think when people first come to that realization that they need, like you said, they need a support group. They need a circle of people who understand that is like a tidal wave of relief because for so many of us, you lived in this relationship where the alcoholism was the family secret. Nobody can talk to anybody about it. So not, not only do you not have a circle of people that understand for many of you, you're not telling, you're not telling your own mom, you're not telling your best friend. And, and so getting to that point where you've got people around you that, that can support you is just like a tidal wave of relief. And even if you are telling your mom or your best friend, you're not telling someone who's walked in your shoes not necessarily yeah you're not telling them all the details yeah like there are things that you can say to someone in your circle of friends that have lived through this that know what you're going through uh, you know you could tell them things that would probably scare other people and that doesn't scare them because they've been through it so yeah yeah absolutely well really good stuff julie we we're big fans and supporters of the Married to Addiction podcast. We're going to link to the Married to Addiction podcast in the show notes for this episode. Tell us a little bit more about, you, you've mentioned that you've got online programs. Can you, can you give us a little more detail about what you're offering? Yeah, sure. I have a 30-day online program. And I say 30 days because it basically, if, if you move through um, one of the lessons each day, it's 30 days, but it's kind of a move at your own pace type of thing, really. Um, that's kind of for somebody who just wants something more self-led. And then I have a, I call it my secret sister circle, because I always say at the beginning of my podcast, like we're, we're sisters in this fight. And a lot of us are fighting it in secret, like you just said, because we don't share with people, but that's my membership. And that is, um, 
more support, you know, through a group. Um, I release two lessons a month there. We do have Zoom meetings, just a lot of, a lot more layers of support. And uh, it's, it's like a group coaching thing, really. So I'm in the group a lot. There, everybody else in the group is really supportive and encouraging and helpful for everyone else. And so that's uh, the other thing that I offer for help. That's great. So if people uh, tag onto that link that we put to the podcast, they can find all of that, find connection to all of that on your website, I assume. Yes, That's there's great. a tab get help and you'll see both of those things there. And then I also have a couple of free resources on there too, if anybody would like to pick those up. That's great. Well, we definitely want to encourage our listeners to check you out. We've been really excited to meet you uh, virtually. Well, I guess it's still virtual. We're still on Zoom, but <laughs> to check out what you had to offer to begin with and then to talk with you live today. Thank you so much for coming on the Intoxicated Podcast, Julie. Thank you. It's been so great to talk to you guys. And thank you for what you're doing as well. I think that, you know, everybody in this space is valuable in their own way. And I know that y'all bring them to the table. So thanks for this platform. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.